welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 9. Um, it's just me and Rob today. We thought we'd do something a bit different after um, quite a few shows last year on some more progressive and avant-garde kind of albums. We thought we'd just do a show of some of our favourite straight-up, just really heavy, extreme metal albums. I think largely the ones we're covering today are in the bracket of death metal, but especially with the first one we're about to cover, I think the genre tag is completely debatable for mm. this band. Um one thing I want to mention from our end of the year show was a massive disappointment. About four days after it went out, the band renamed number two of the year, Vector, his lineup completely yeah. imploded. All three other members who weren't the singer and the same three guys that have been on every single one of their studio albums have left the band. So don't know what this means for their future. So yeah, hopefully we'll hear more from Vector, but well, and, and from the other guys as well. Was, like they clearly made a fantastic album at the end. It's a shame it had to end that way, but. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, I think it was literally about four days after it. So mm. hopefully our list hasn't cursed bands, because if Ocean's a Slumber now break up, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> All right, so the first album we're covering today, it relatively old one now. Uh, this is the final album from Celtic Frost. This is Monotheist. Um, it's the fifth album in the Celtic Frost catalogue. Uh, like, Celtic Frost obviously started as Hellhammer back in 1984, um, did four albums under various lineups um, with the main core of Tom Gabriel Fisher as guitar and vocals and Martin Arcane as bass, although as we recently discovered, he actually wasn't on one of the albums. Mm, mm. Two, two, he wasn't on Cold Lake. Yeah, yeah, well, that's probably a good thing. But... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, after Cold Lake, um, I think the lineup got back together, recorded Vanity Nemesis, which I've actually never mm. listened to, broke up again, then reformed a few years before this album came out in 2006. And this album was the kind of final, combined with the final touring cycle the band ever did. And shows like a real radical change for a band that were always radically changing and being kind of very experimental and pushing the boundaries within what they call... They seem to refer to themselves as a death metal band, but... Yeah, it's a tricky one because you start off with Hellhammer a long time ago and that was sort of the burgeoning scene of black metal and inspired a lot of the black metal bands and songs like Satanic Rites and that sort of lyrics would have gone to things like Bathory and Burzum and stuff like that. But then like this album in particular doesn't really fit anywhere within the categorizations of extreme metal. Celtic Frost and to an extent Triptychon and Hellhammer before them have always been really difficult to pin down into a specific genre and it's got elements of what started off black metal and it sort of feels like death metal but it's not really death metal but it has this incredibly heavy aggressive and sort of um all-encompassing depressing atmosphere to the album yeah so if you've missed this album this album really seems like the kind of build up to what would become Triptychon after um Tom disbanded Celtic Frost uh he went on to form Triptychon and that very much took this kind of supremely heavy, sort of doomy death metal sound mm. into a, just a more fleshed-out direction, like songs got longer and so on. So on this album, we see getting a lot of really simplistic, minimalist uh, compositions, like a lot of songs that will have one or two riffs in yeah. them, um, and they will just all be based around this supremely heavy guitar tone with quite simplistic drumming often, like often some kind of like cool kind of grooves behind it but nothing particularly stand out 
It's it's a really interesting album, sort of like a, as a point in time for Celtic Frost because it's just before Celtic Frost um, ended for good, and you had Trypticon emerge from that. But uh, if you read the interviews, we were talking about the songs being a bit different on this. If you read interviews with Tom Fisher, he'll say that this is this and Trypticon is exactly what he's always been aiming to do with Hellhammer and Celtic Frost, and what he's always been building up to and trying to get across the sort of aggression and negativity and like real genuine feelings that he has um, from his life and what he wants to portray in art. But to me, this album has always felt like the watershed moment which brought us to Trypticon in that the songwriting seems, it's got more minimalist, but it seems to be hitting the point that he wants to hit much better. It has less of the sort of really fast, aggressive guitar parts that you might find on something like um, Morbid Tales, and it's slower and more plodding and more oppressive in its approach to writing songs. And, but that's not to say it doesn't have some fairly fast bits. Yeah, yeah, there, there is, there's certainly the odd blast beat and moment where the pace really picks up in it, but it does always seem to be based around this core of an extremely heavy riff driven by Tom's ludicrous guitar tone. Like, a tone mm, I've never heard anyone... Tone kind of come close to making the noise he gets with a guitar. Yeah, I've, I've been looking up this a lot because I'd love to be able to get that guitar tone. And He uses fairly standard amps and just uses the Ibanez tube screamers. And a lot of it is the way he plays. Because if you see him play, like he's he hits the strings so hard. He's a monster. And just the riffs he plays and the way he plays them just sound so huge in a way no one else can really get. Yeah, the, the other kind of um, major departure, say you're familiar with like Morbid Tales or to make a very on um it tom's vocals are really doing something different on this album like he's bringing a lot of kind of i think like a, a, probably a goth influence with some very mm. melodic um but like kind of just low clean singing and and actually um i think this is the first time this has happened martin arrogane sings on a few songs yeah. so um the the video track from the album uh a dying god coming into human flesh. Martin does all the vocals. He um, he does these very melodic, almost spoken passages at the start over a really clean guitar tone, and then in the build-ups, the heavy part. He has this really distorted effect on his vocals, mm, and mm. is doing these completely like inhuman screams over the top of it, which is is a lot of fun and just adds to the variation on this album. Yeah, as as moments of the sort of more subdued Tom Warrior as well on songs like Obscured where the chorus is him just saying no over and over again which just emphasises this incredible heavy atmosphere that this album has you really feel the emotions that are put into it and there's um, a great documentary um, called A Dying God which is all about this album and the band at the time and you look at it and you watch it and you've interviews with the cast members as well and it just seems like it's really difficult for them all to be in Celtic Frost. And whenever they're in Celtic Frost, it's hard and they don't like it. Um, but they do it for the music that they get out of it. And you can you can hear that on this album. It doesn't sound like an album made by happy people. I think, I think the best quote from that documentary is Martin says something along the lines of when he's asked if he's Tom's friend. He sort of looks sadly <laughs> at the camera and replies, I'm not sure Tom has any friends. <laughs> yeah, they refer to themselves more as brothers and... Uh, and that they don't always get on, or ever get on. And yeah, the documentary is quite depressing, because you can completely see it sowing the seeds of the band falling apart. And like, disappointing after this, Martin, I don't think, ever ever did anything more in music. Yeah, it's a real shame, because as we were saying, A Dying God Coming Into Human Flesh was almost entirely written by him, and it's an incredible song. Yeah, so beyond beyond that, uh, in the lineup, we also have um, Errol 
Anala, who's the guitarist, and actually um, adds into some of the compositions. Mm, like, mm. I think this, again, might be one of the only Celtic Frost albums where someone else is helping compose, and then drummer Franco Sessa. I think both of them, I don't believe, have done a lot since this. Yeah, nothing that I was able to find. Yeah, adding in some of like the, the other sort of weirder elements they bring in. Like, um, we have a, a track, if you've ever seen Trypticon Live, was often included in their live set. Um, is the uh, the triptych, um, which is like a 14-minute long epic that has like a full uh, choir on it and a few mm. other guest musicians. Like, it's quite a, yeah quite a massive composition and would lead to other huge Streptocon songs like The Prolonging and um, Black Snow, Black is it? Black Snow oh, yeah, from the latest Casamata, album. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to find out what else is on there. Yeah, you've just got a full uh, a full choir and also um, uh, guest uh, vocals from producer Peter Tagrant of uh, Hypocrisy and Pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't realise until <laughs> re-looking up this album that he was the, uh, yeah, he was the producer on it. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenally heavy album and like really realizes what Celtic Frost has always been trying to do, which is always to push it more extreme, heavier to like and these sort of occultist themes and sort of themes of sadness and difficulty within the lives of a lot of the people who've been in Celtic Frost and stuff like that. It for me it really crystallizes that and is one of the purest expressions of what Celtic Frost has always been, which is pushing things further and being sort of scarier and heavier and darker than any other band. Yeah, because not only lyrically, but also musically, this is an incredibly bleak and depressing album on mm. top of being really damn heavy. If you listen to like, the intro track, uh, Progony, like, that starts with this like amazing squeal of like feedback yeah. and then just goes <laughs> straight into one of the heftiest riffs on the album. Mm. We also see on this album the first appearance of uh, vocalist Simone Vollenweeder, who was the guest vocal on every single um, Tripscon release? Hmm. She did even the uh, Shatter EP. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, so, and she adds in, like, on the track Obscured, like, this is yeah, a really good example of the depressing stuff on the yeah, album. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not just heavy anymore as well. Like, it, it sort of gets to these moments of almost transcendent beauty where you sort of pull yourself out of the really heavy bit, and it, as you have these female vocals and Tom doing more sort of. Um, subdued clean vocals as well which just adds this sort of bit of variation to this album which perhaps you haven't seen as much before mm-hmm. <laughs> the other very sad note is um, the final track Winter which I think is part of the the kind of the end triptych um, there is a note of this being um, being the third song in what they, they wanted to relate together with um, with another instrumental I'm just trying to find it yeah with Rex Array off of um, into Pandemonium. Rex mm. Array's part one. This is part three. And they then say, like, we're, we're hoping that Celtic Frost will get to write part two at some time in the future. Yeah, yeah. So, unfortunately, I think that uh, <laughs> that sadly will never come to pass. Mm. I think it's very unlikely uh, Martin Frost. or Tom will ever <laughs> speak again, really. Yeah. No, it's, it's a very... Obviously, this album is sort of... And Celtic Frost is the, a lot of the time the relationship between Martin and Tom... And it's very strange, particularly watching the documentary, how they relate to each other, as we've said. And as well, there's a particular bit on it where it's a footage from a long time ago. And Martin's talking about the first woman that he ever fell in love with. And then saying that Tom cheated on him with her in the sort of like the room next door to him. <laughs> so almost as if he was trying to keep him in the band or something. It's, yeah, it just is an incredibly tumultuous relationship. But they've made some fantastic music. It, yeah, it did result in 
like at least three incredible albums, mm. and the, like that doesn't include the kind of EPs beforehand of um, um, Morbid Tales and yeah, yeah. Um, Dethroned Emperor, which are just like you can get them now to package together and they're basically an album yeah, themselves. Yeah. Like yeah, pretty much with Celtic Frost, I would say you've got to buy the first three albums are all incredible, and this one, yeah, then maybe yeah. miss the middle period where it all went a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> the other thing about this album is it was a massively formative experience for me because this came out 2006 and I got into the band around that time um, this was the third ever live show I went to see which is I saw, yeah. yeah, I saw the tour for this which was um, who was it uh, Wittain, um Legion of the Damned who I think have now pretty much disappeared Cannibal Corpse as well no it was uh, it was a dual headliner of Celtic Frost and Creator yeah yeah. Fantastic. So yeah, well, they were on first, and back then this was like I think just as um, Sworn to Darkness had come out. So mm. like, yeah, really early on they were hardly known, and Celtic Frost were not actually headlining. Creator were, which was totally the wrong way around. <laughs> like Celtic Frost show was this mind blowing thing, and then Creator were. I, I guess good. It's just it's very hard to follow a band playing a 15-minute-long kind of destructive epic like that, and then I think, going... I think it's tricky emotionally as well, because Celtic Frost has such a sort of... has a, such a note of finality to all of the songs and this heaviness and depressive atmosphere to it. Like, how can you really follow that? It's just tricky. You can't really feel as genuine as a lot of Celtic Frost feels. No, no, exactly. And if you're wondering, the first ever gig I went to... Was the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's I, not I, too bad. I, at I was about twelve, <laughs> yeah. and it was worth it because in support was James Brown, and there's nothing mm. better than watching a stadium full of white people attempt to get groovy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, like uh, the only other things I, I particularly wanted to mention about this album is the other thing that really struck me, and this is this sounds stupid, but this album, if you're ever listening to it and just not really getting into it. Just turn it up louder. I don't know why. It seems to always work for me. When I'm ever thinking, that's a bit simplistic at the moment. Like, It's an album that's just got to be played super loud. Yeah, and I think yeah. that plays into Tom's like amazing tone. And, and actually, like, I'm probably giving too much credit to Tom there. Like, the bass sound, the, the other guitarist is playing on all the songs as well. And the whole tone of the band is incredible yeah, yeah. underneath this. I mean, is there anything else uh, you want to mention about this one, Rob? As as well, um, as we mentioned, the other instrument is worth mentioning the drumming as well, which is fairly simplistic, but manages to hold down this incredible atmosphere, which is quite something. And obviously, watching the documentary and the drummer, Frank, at the time, was saying that it's really, really hard when you're playing in such an iconic band, because you see everyone in the crowd, they know all of the drum fills. <laughs> yeah. If you make a mistake, they'll know. But sometimes you do want to slightly change things up, because it will work better with the new sound, because they tune down for this album, particularly from things like Morbid Tales and um, To Make a Theory. And, I think this is in B tuning. Yeah, yeah. So, so, like, when I saw it live, like, them doing like, older stuff like Circle of the Tyrant or Different Emperor, these songs sounded completely different. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's, I think it's, they're so old songs just take a new air of heaviness in the new tuning. So, but yeah, it's, it's a hell of an achievement for him to be in this band and to pull this album together as he has, because it is a fairly different beast to some of the earlier albums. Mm. So the, um, the track we wanted to play from this album is quite an interesting one. This is track two, Ground, which is probably actually slightly heavier than the first one, and it really does fit into that whole minimalist argument. I think it has like two riffs in it. Um, 
this song, the, the notes about it are, it was originally written by, like, Tom programming it, and the whole band didn't actually want it on the <laughs> album. Like, Tom had to fight to get it in there. Which I think is incredible, because it actually stands out as one yeah, of the real highlights. Song. Yeah, and it sort of, I think, shows the direction that Triptychon would take after this. This is particularly one that Tom wrote himself. So it just shows the sort of artistic direction he was taking.
Okay, so the next album we're covering is like a pretty formative one for me in death metal. And this is um, Vader's Litany, released in 2000 on Metal Blade Records. And this was the first death metal album I ever owned, and I love it to pieces. It's a fantastic album. And I describe it just as a sort of overall thing. It's just 30 minutes of pure Polish fury. It's a fantastic album. It's really quick, it's really fast. A lot of the songs are like just over a minute long, if that, like stretching to maybe four or three for the longer tracks. Um, it's incredibly fast, it's incredibly aggressive, and it's really well sort of held down. Nothing ever stays longer than it should. Uh, in fact, some of the riffs don't stay as long as I'd like them to. That might be one of my only problems with it. But it's just a wonderful example of sort of slightly thrash-influenced death metal. So, um, we should probably give some context to Vader. Vader um, are basically a Polish institution as a death metal band. They formed in 1983 as a kind of like um, heavy metal kind of covers band and um, eventually slowly morphed into into the kind of the band you, you finally hear on their first demo with Peter doing vocals, uh, Morbid Reich, and pretty much have kept the sound mm. they had of Morbid Reich for their entire career. This is the fourth album, released 17 years after Peter started <laughs> the band, which is kind of incredible. And the lineup for this album is Peter, guitars, vocals and bass, which pretty much is constant throughout every yeah. um every vader album there's often like another bass player credited but actually almost every album is recorded with peter doing all the guitar work bar the other guy's solos yeah, yeah. and all the bass playing and all the vocals then we have um this is probably the kind of seen as a classic vader lineup mauser as the second guitarist who i believe was in the band yeah, he joined on Black to the Blind and left after Impressions in Blood, so was in the band for five albums. Mm. And uh, then drummer Doc, who sadly passed away from alcohol poisoning, I believe, in 2005. And Doc was the drummer from basically as soon as Vader turned into a serious entity with their yeah. early demos and was all the way all the way up to 2005, so lasted a fair while after this. Okay. Yeah, like much to what Rob was saying earlier... It's just 30 minutes of like the most to-the-point death metal yeah. you're going to hear. Yeah. As I want to talk about the drumming as well. This is what the thing that really helped me get into the album, because I uh, played drums. And um, just the drumming on this album is phenomenal. The blast beats are so on point. The bass drum sounds incredible, which particularly in the blast beats is something that has to be done well and just gives it this punishing, like n it never stops. This sort of pounding boom, 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 boom is there constantly. It sounds amazingly good. Um, and uh, doesn't manage to fade away, despite the fact of how fast it's going, and there's a blast beat going over the top of it, and accentuates the guitars perfectly, and just keeps the pace of this album continuously up, and you don't, there's barely any time to take breath on this album, but it's alright, because it's only 30 minutes long. Yeah, yeah, it, it's one of those albums that pretty much does one thing, but it doesn't outstay its welcome, mm. so the standard, like, Vader song is, like, they don't go in for massive technical riffs. These are, a lot of the time, like, detuned thrash riffs, but yeah. the, with the drums kind of sped up, and kind of the core of Vader's sound is Peter's guitar and bass just locking in with these awesome blast beats or just really fast double kick beats in the mm. background. And then we have, like, Peter's bizarre vocals over the top of them, which are definitely unusual for death metal. Yeah, which, which aren't your sort of standard death growl you hear in a lot of death metal bands. It's... It sort of seems like it's halfway between a weird sort of shouting thing that maybe Tom Araya and Slayer would do and a proper death metal thing. But they're remarkable. The, the man as well can 
sort of almost rap in death metal form. You listen to some of the other albums, like uh, you listen to Decapitated Saints. He can oh speak God, yeah. so fast. You can hear a little bit of that on Keffer on this track, or Zeppa. Is that how it's, it's, it's written? It's pronounced Keffer. Pronounced Keffer, yeah. yeah. But um, you can hear how fast he can go. He's a, he's a really versatile vocalist, actually, in terms of what he can do. Although sometimes his pronunciation of words is a little off. But yeah, especially on the earlier albums, it was clear like English was something he had learned a lot later into his life. Um, yeah, other things about this album, like the kind of the way they keep things a bit interesting, is we get a lot of really cool changes in pace with this. Where so like a lot of riffs will essentially you have the same riff, but like the drums will drop right out or drop to like a little cymbal beat behind it, and mm-hmm. then you get cool guitar riff build up. And then, like, another guitar will slide in, and then you'll get straight back into the blast. The drums do a good job of sort of changing the feel of riffs as well. You can drop back to a sort of more laid-back groove, and then go back into the blast beat, and it will change the feel of the riff and the song entirely. And this all takes place very quickly, but it keeps you interested in what, perhaps otherwise, if it didn't change so much, could become a little stale. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rob earlier mentioned Tom Araya, and I think the Slayer comparison is very apt across the board. Like... This album, and then Black to the Blind before actually, very heavily borrowed from the ideas of um, Raining Blood. Mm. Like, Raining Blood is the most to-the-point thrash metal album you're going to get, where it's it's 30 minutes of straight thrash, there's no other influence in it, it's just like these balls-to-the-wall riffs. Um, and this is that done with death metal. Mm. Like, and mm. it, if you're into Slayer, like, Vader so clearly worship them, like, yeah. I've seen them do covers of Raining Blood live and so on, like... There's no hiding. They're pretty much detuning Slayer riffs. But they kept what Slayer had with Raining Blood of having a huge groove behind these really fast riffs. Yeah, with some excellent drumming, which makes up a lot of it. But the thing we mentioned as well, we said that Vader don't tend to go in for the hugely technical stuff. But another similarity to Slayer, perhaps, is some of the solos where it descends into you know this sort of guitar feedback thing. But I think a lot of the time Vader do this a lot better than Slayer or Kerry King do in that they make it atmospheric because of just the frenzied sort of pace of the songs and this sort of mad guitar noise that comes out of nowhere and it really fits the intensity and the atmosphere of this album. So I think they do that really nicely. Yeah, so this album and the four before it, all the solos on it are these really quick, like often about 10 second long, like whammy bar, like uh, Mm. pinch harmonic, like ridiculous noise they very much in the vein of Slayer, but they keep them so short and sweet, they really, yeah. really fit the sound. On the next album, uh, Mauser especially, will start bringing in some really nice, like, clean-tone leads, which some would argue is <laughs> flies in the face of the, the kind of core of Vader, but I don't know. I think, I think it was about time to vary it up after this album, because this album nailed this sound yeah. so well. There's yeah, no, no point trying it again. Not much else you can do. And as well, like every other musician, as well as the drums and everything else, is so perfect on this album. It's, there's not a note wrong, which is mad for the sort of the speed of a lot of these guitarists, which you have to repeat over and over and over again. And uh, yeah, it's uh, the musicianship is incredible. Yeah, yeah. The only kind of uh, weird note, and I don't know if this is a bonus track or not, the song where it seems to completely change is the final track, The Final Massacre. Which is originally, I think, on the Morbid Reich demo. Yeah, it's um, a long track. Yeah, they've re-record, re-recorded for this. And this song does sound noticeably different to the rest of the album. Mm. It's 4 minutes 30 long, whereas most of the other tracks in this album are 3 minutes long. Some, like um, One Made of Dreams, which is one of the catchier tracks, is a minute 50. Like There's yeah. loads of these, like just a couple of riffs strung together, 
right, we're done, almost a grind-length song. But then you have this song at the end, which has got way more changes of pace than the rest of the album, mm. way more different ideas. The lyrics are noticeably more stupid than most of the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, it, It's very clear it is just someone who's gone through, like, other bands' lyrics and just strung together <laughs> kind of random, <laughs> evil-sounding words. Yeah. I mean, it's still a really cool track, and I think when I last checked... I think I have five studio recorded versions of yeah, this song. so many. I, I, I have to say it's probably my favourite, but that could well be just because of the nostalgia I have for this album. But it, it is, it's quite an oddball, but then it is at the end, and I've, I've always really enjoyed The Final Massacre, particularly this recording of it. I thought it was a nice way to end the album. Yeah, well, just because it's doing something different, which, mm. you, like, after, after we got ten tracks before that of just, like, this really tight uh, Vader sound doing something that changed the pace up was yeah really interesting mm-hmm. um, I think the, the only one of the only dodgy notes on this is uh, track 5 Cold Demons fucking brilliant song but the the weird like um, kind of like sample of tank noises at the oh, start oh the little intro yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's like tops and tail by like a, a sample of a tank commander talking and I I could be wrong it's, I can't find it referenced anywhere I don't think that's from a film or anything. I think that's Peter doing it. It certainly sounds like Peter, but it's... <laughs> Which, yeah, is immensely cheesy. On the mm. 25th anniversary... Um, was it? Yeah, I think it's 25th anniversary album. They did a re-recording of it without all these bits, and it's about a minute shorter. And it's really good like that. I've also seen it live, and yeah, it's a great song, just I'm not sure about why they put those bits in. <laughs> Other than that, I don't think there's a huge amount to add on this album. As I say, it's very short, to the point. The song we thought we'd uh, play us out with is Kefa, just because this is such a cool track. Mm. And the intro to it is probably one of the most technical riffs you'll hear they yeah. do. <laughs> like, most of the rest of the song is more indicative of what the rest of the album does. Lots of, like, kind of almost thrashy chugging with, like, yeah. a cool drum groove underneath. But yeah, it has this absolutely ridiculous intro at the start. <laughs>
Okay, so the next album we're covering is another fairly influential one for me. This is Carcass's Heartwork, which was released in, in 1993 on Earache Records. And this is, so it's a little different to the ones we've covered in that it's less sort of straight death metal and more bridges into the melodic death metal style with a lot more sort of leads and melody taking precedence on this album. Um, and this is, again, one of the albums that got me into melodic death metal as well as death metal in general. And overall, it's such an interesting album in how it varies the technicality and the riffs uh, and manages to stay heavy despite having this really great sense of melody and songwriting over the top of it, which really drew me into this album. So Carcass, I basically should go back and explain the whole backstory because they have such a critical role in the birth of grind and death metal. So we, we the core lineup of Carcass is always Jeff Walker, um, bass and vocals, also he writes all the lyrics, Bill Steer, a lead guitar. Mm-hmm. Bill Steer tends to write most of the music, but also Ken Owen, the drummer, does uh, help with that. So that core, they recorded... The first album was kind of a mess, and the band sort of hate it, but it was like uh, Napalm Death Scum, which uh, also features Bill Steer mm. and Jeff Walker drew the cover. <laughs> um, uh, like, it's this really great historic artifact of like, this is what was seen as the fastest, mm. heaviest mm. music around the time, and probably like helped birth the whole gore grind movement with the, the cover art being a collage of horrible images <laughs> cut out of, I think it was one of Bill's older sister's medical textbooks. <laughs> Following that, they did another. This next album was more of the same, but they got producer Colin Will, uh, Colin Richardson's in, and he just made it actually sound good. Like you mm-hmm. could pick out what was going on. Still, this brutally heavy sound. Like at that point as well, all three um, were adding vocals to the album, and Bill Sear was doing these really low death growls. Yeah, he got some great vocals. So the th- then comes the th- like about two years after that comes the third album, uh, Necroticism, the Canting the Insularubris. Full title, yeah. <laughs> I think that's how you say it. Um, and that point, they recruited ex Carnage guitarist uh, Michael Amott, who mm. would later go on to form Spiritual Beggars and Arch Enemy and become massively successful. Um, and they changed the sound up again, like adding in more melodic elements, like really up in the song lengths as well. It's like mm. some seven eight minute long songs on this album. I think it's an in- like I really like Necroticism, but I do think it's a bit of a meandering release. Like there's a few songs that just go on a bit too long. I don't know your feelings on. Uh, do you- Fairly similar to, to me, Heartwork has always been the sort of purified, distilled version of the sort of thing that Necroticism was trying to do. Yeah. So um, then, two years after that, we have this absolutely massive shift in style. Still same lineup, but both all three um, of like. Steer, Amot, and Owen have stopped adding their vocals, so we just have Jeff Walker's like kind of quite high, like real snarl. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, he's doing what I guess Dave Mustaine wishes he could do. <laughs> um, yeah, and the songs have got shorter, more condensed, more melodic. The production is the cleanest you'll ever hear until we get to Surgical Steel yeah, when in the future, yeah. but. Oh, actually, the production might be even clearer on the next few. Anyway, anyway <laughs> the cleaning is so far. Like, it's a very, and like probably most reminiscent. I didn't actually check time-wise how close together these were, but like the album it most reminds me of is something like Sorcerer of the Soul by At The Gates. Mm. And I think equally massively fed into what would be in it, like an absolute explosion of more like yeah. death metal bands through Europe. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting talking about the vocals, actually. Because if you look at... Um, the, the person who tends to talk about things to do with Carcass tends to be Jeff Walker. He's mm. the guy who everyone goes to to talk to. Uh, as the lyricist and the vocalist, you can see why. But they don't, don't ever tend to interview someone like Bill Steer, um, which is a shame, really. But you hear a lot of this stuff through Jeff Walker, who's a bit of an entertaining personality. And um, according to him... When they were recording this album, everyone was trying to persuade Bill to do vocals on this, but he, he just didn't feel like it. Um, Bill Steer wrote almost all of the riffs um, to think, this album. I think Mike uh, contrib- contributed a reasonable amount to the writing on this one, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not convinced of that. But no, Mike pretty much wrote nothing on the one before, because mm. he was almost done when he was recruited. Um, yeah, Jeff is a very interesting personality, as Rob mentioned, although... Now on stage he's hilarious, but um, I've been watching some old Headbangers Ball interviews with him, and I don't think he was as funny as he thought he was back then. <laughs> some very awkward moments on some of those, mm. although the interview is kind of shit, so um, might not be his fault. But yeah, um, this—it's such a sort of as you were sort of comparing it to At the Gate as well. It's this real sort of point at which we realised that really heavy stuff could also be really melodic and that could mm. work in tandem perfectly. And you can see so many great examples of that with really harsh vocals on songs like um, most famous ones like Heartwork and Buried Dreams yeah, yeah. have really nice guitar leads to them and it opens up with these lovely guitar leads and at the same time has this really horrible snarl over it. And I love the combination of these two. Yeah, so uh, Rob, Rob alludes to leads. Like, this is an album really built around guitar solos. Like, mm. every song has a solo from both guitarists, and they are these ultra-melodic solos. They stopped naming them like they did on the previous <laughs> album. But, um, it's, so you have, like, two normally quite short but very melodic solos, and I don't... Maybe this is just me, but I could always tell which guitarist was doing, <laughs> doing what solos. They both still have their... Because these, these two are very good um, kind of melodic classic rock guitarists. Like mm. Bill has um, his kind of blues-based band Firebird and Mike obviously has Spiritual Beggars. So they're definitely bringing in a lot of rock influences mm. to this album as well. And the other core of songwriting is just really, really memorable riffs. Like it's yeah. incredibly yeah. good riffs. It's got some great groove to it as well, lining up with the drums behind it. Um on things like um, Buried Dreams, like the main riff when it gets into it has this incredible groove and real push to it, which yeah just makes it sound so much cooler. Yeah, um, the, the the kind of interesting thing about it is like a lot of people have references of Ken Owen has never actually been a like is almost accidentally a really good drummer. <laughs> like he's not technically that gifted, but the way he structures things, he just has an odd way of playing that just makes his drumming really yeah. memorable. Like. Everyone knows how the the intro to Corporeal Jigsaw Quandary goes. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's only like it's just not an obvious beat, but he just yeah. seems to keep throwing these things in and just yeah. very different ideas that somehow work. Yeah, and this this album has a hell of a lot of like live staples on it now with Buried Dreams and Heartwork, as mm. uh, Rob previously mentioned, Carnal Forge as well. Actually, I think this album has quite a few tracks that. I would love to see added into a Carcass Live set. Oh, definitely. So stuff like uh, Our Bike Max Flesh, which is the most disappointing song on the album because it has the absolute best riff right at the end, yeah. which he only does once, <laughs> and it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a couple of moments like that on Litany that we just covered from Vader as well, where they play a riff, and you think, that riff is fantastic, and then they stop playing the riff, and you go, oh, come on, play, play the riff a bit more, that was really good. And then we have moments like Embodiments, which starts off a bit slow and chuggy. It takes about a minute and a half to get going, and then just descends into this beautifully melodic piece. It's just, mm. yeah, 
like so memorable and, and like not really that heavy if it wasn't for the vocals like yeah yeah and and Jeff Snarl you can understand what he's saying yeah. like which yeah. again makes an album seem slightly less heavy I guess yeah and the other great thing about this is as we've said with Kelly Frost as well amazing guitar tone mm. there's just something about this guitar tone which makes you think of Carcass straight away and it's it's amazing that it can not only do these really harsh but also this really melodic stuff and also so they talked about how they recorded this album and they were saying essentially they they've been given a bigger space in the studio to record this as Carcass were doing well um, after the criticism and uh, they essentially decided that the guitars just didn't sound good enough in this big room so they brought them all back into this tiny little room and recorded the guitars there and that's how they got this phenomenal tone to it it's all these things it just seems to be you just stumble upon a way of making this incredible noise and then that just becomes associated with your band forever the interesting thing is at the time and I don't know how true this is for each um, Carcass release basically but this album got kind of critically panned at the time. Mm. Like, uh, Jeff's always seemed in interviews more recently incredibly bitter about the reception of it. Because it's, it's now seen, and, and rightly so, as like a real staple of melodic death metal. But at the time, because it was such a departure from their previous release, I think fans really panned it, and a lot of fans were quite rude to their face about the, yeah, the change in yeah. direction. Which, if you are a fan of the band, don't do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's it seems to, to happen do. all the time. Right? Yeah. Don't tell a musician to, your fa- to their face you don't like what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's needless. Like, um, yeah. yeah. If you talk to Jeff Walker now, he'll say that, you know, because a lot of people will come and say to them that Heartwork was this groundbreaking moment and, like, what do you think of this as opposed to all the other albums? And he very much takes the sort of view that, he, I think he describes it as if the albums are his children and you can't really have a favourite. Um, because they've all, they're all for you, represent something about the time you were mm. recording, about the people who were there, and that sort of thing. So I don't think Carcass themselves, or at least Jeff, doesn't necessarily have a favourite, or perhaps see Heartwork in the light that we do now, as this sort of cornerstone. But it's just sort of indicative of where Carcass were, and where the scene was at that time, which started producing all these great bands. Yeah, yeah, like this, this is all come come out of that, that little uh, UK scene that, like mainly was built around the rise of Napalm Death, but mm. led to the birth of Grind and Death Metal. Interestingly, looking back at some old interviews, they didn't think of themselves as a Death Metal band when they recorded Necroticism. Yeah. So the idea of what Death Metal completely changed. Like, death Metal, I think in the UK especially, was thought of as Death Grind. Yeah. And then as soon yeah. as any melodicism was included, it was thought of as a completely new thing. Something so else, yeah. it's interesting how those genre tags move over time. Mm. Um... Yeah, so like beyond like the awesome solos, catchy riffs, there's not a huge amount. I mean, it is, as I say before, like very sort of the soul esque. Like it is a very straight to the point album, but it pretty much nails it on every song. Like yeah, this yeah. album doesn't have to say it's welcome. It's about forty minutes long, and bar one track, everything on this is good. Towards yeah, the end, yeah. we get doctrinal expletives, which I don't know why they include on the album. <laughs> but it's just immensely boring. And then we have an interesting final track that I've never heard of them playing live called Death Certificate, mm. which I think is mainly written by Mike Amott. It definitely has a very different feel to it to the rest of the album. I'm a really big fan of Death Certificate, actually. I'd love to mm-hmm. see that live. But I think because Mike, yeah, mainly because Mike's Michael Amott's not there. Yeah. He, he actually left the band after the recording of this album to form what would go on to be Spiritual Beggars, which covered a few episodes ago. So he clearly like, had a very... 
very wide area of influence and went on to do something very different, which was also great. But it's a shame. I'd love to see that song. Well, I guess, though, like um, these other things, got off Spiritual Beggars, he formed a side project with his brother called Arch Enemy, yeah. which really yeah. did seem like it. Like, especially initially, if you listen to, like, the first three releases, it does seem like a band just trying to do heart work more times, mm. where maybe more, um, even more leanings towards melodicism with, like, instrumentals and so on. Yeah. Whereas after this, Carcass, Carcass would go on to record Swan Song, which, if they thought this got critically panned, that <laughs> album has yeah, so much hatred before, towards it. Again, I think it's all right. Yeah, like, it's, it's it's got some great moments on it, actually. Um Again, uh, Echo, just don't go to musicians and tell them you think their work is shit. Like, just... the, the the one thing that is... Um, so after Swan Song, it didn't do so well and the band eventually disbanded. Um, Jeff and Ken tried to keep the kind of... the sort of thing alive. And I think they kept the uh, the guitarist from Swan Song and formed Black Star. Don't go and check out the Black Star album. It is like a way more boring version of... <laughs> <laughs> um, of Swan Song, it's just yeah, it's just kind of disappointing, which is a shame because yeah, I, I'd hope they'd be able to keep that. But I think losing your main songwriter, you're always going to be on a bit yeah, of a loser. It's difficult. Well, and then of course, years later, Carcass came back with Surgical Steel, which like whilst not for me the level of hard work, is still a great album mm. and like really recaptures that Carcass spirit in an incredible way for such a massive gap. And we've seen them live relatively recently here in Bristol. And they still play a lot of songs off Heartwork and play a lot of new songs. And it just feels right. All of it fits together very nicely as a cohesive whole. It all feels like it's part of the same creative process, which is great to see them back. Yeah. The, uh, so originally they reformed with um, with Bill and Jeff at the core. And they got Michael Amott back and um, Arch Enemy drummer Daniel Ernson. Because sadly, um, Ken Owen had a brain hemorrhage quite a few years back and... Yeah, he just can't really play drums anymore. It was nice when um, Masonic Bloodstock, um, Arch Enemy played, then Carcass played. I think that's the way around. And they got Ken Owen on to play drums for like one of the old songs. Oh, that's excellent. But yeah, he, he can only manage like the earlier stuff now. So mm-hmm. they had to get in a like a, like a stand-in drummer. And since uh, uh, Daniel and uh, Michael have left and they've got in two new mus- musicians who are like relatively unknowns... And yet yeah, taking the project on. I think one of them might not have even been born when the band first formed. Which is, <laughs> it's kind of incredible. Yeah, it's amazing, really. And I think the same is true of like atheists with their reformed lineup <laughs> as a bunch of teenagers in it. Like, yeah, it's amazing how these things move forward. But yeah, I don't think it can be understated the influence this has had on the metal world. Mm. Or Carcass as a whole. Carcass is such an influential band. And seem to some extent to get forgotten in that. I don't know, now yeah, they're back, yeah. they seem to be getting a bit more credit for it, but... Yeah, it's normally bands like uh, Death or Cannibal Corpse, which are normally held up, Morbid Angel held up as the sort of real bright lights of death metal. But this Carcass and other bands like At The Gates and Arch Enemy, well, Arch Enemy later on, were really sort of that beginning of getting the melodicism into it, which is great and gives us this diverse sort of weirdness in death metal we see today. Yeah, and you can find a million and one car- Carcass worship bands yeah. worshipping different Carcass albums, which is kind of incredible. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're not going to play like the obvious track of something like Hard Work or Buried Dreams off this. We thought we'd go for one that I don't think has equally has ever made it into the live uh, lineup, not not when I've seen it at any rate. This is um, the eighth track on the album, Blind Bleeding the Blind.
To the final band um, we're going to cover today. We completely forgot to mention something in the Carcass set, which we don't want to have people shout at us about. There's a really interesting connection between Carcass and Celtic Frost in the um, the cover of Carcass's album was drawn by H.R. Geiger. Yeah, and... it's one of his sculptures, I believe. And Celtic Frost, particularly Tom, have been great friends of H.R. Geiger. And to Megatherion is the classic sort of H.R. Geiger Satan style cover of his fantastic artwork. Uh, H.R. Geiger being behind Alien and all sorts of other things. You'll see him in pop culture everywhere if you know what to look for. Yeah, yeah. A lot of metal bands have sort of used his art and stuff like that. It's just a cool connection between those bands. Well, yeah, Tom G. Warrior is an incredibly good friend for the eulogy mm. at his funeral. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, so we're going to get into the, the final band of the day. Um, a band that, that described himself as the belch of unearthly self-glorification, <laughs> the pinnacles of human genius. A pastiche of left-wing cant with fawning references. The only band in the subgenre of supreme avant-garde death metal. Before time began, there was the cult. We don't know where it came from, only that it has the power to create genius art. Uh, this is the Dutch Idiots, the monolith death cult. <laughs> it's a fantastic band. We've been wanting to cover for a long time, actually. Yeah, uh, huge fans of these guys. They're just a band that take a really interesting take on death metal. Mm. Um, we're going to cover their third album, uh, Triumvirate, which was the album I discovered them on, um, for like a Metal Hammer review that was like just praising it to oh, high heavens. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I, I just bought this one of the rare ones where I've just bought on the strength of a review and mm. was not disappointed. So the genre um, they could be classified in, I guess, would be kind of possibly industrial death metal but then that's quite a nebulous description yeah, it's tricky days. there's definitely elements in this which make it essentially not your traditional death metal 
Um, and the way I describe it really is it has the intensity of death metal with, you know, really heavy, fast guitars and drums and really, really heavy vocals as well. Um, and then it adds more layers of intensity to that with sort of industrial sounds um, and sort of orchestral style stuff with organs and pianos and sort of almost classical music influences. And it just makes it sound more intense. There is more stuff going on than your mind can possibly pay attention to at once. And so every time you listen to this album, you'll work out new things that are going on within it because it's an incredibly dense sort of wall of sound type album. Mm. So... Um... A bit of backstory to the Monolith Death Cult. They formed in 2002 as Monolith and after releasing the obliterating the despised demo, changed the name to the Monolith Death Cult because I think it's about 30 bands called Monolith. Yeah, um, yeah. That demo is really good if you can track it down. I think there's a copy of it on the re-release of White Crematorium. After that, they followed that demo up with, um, I think it's the Epost... The Apostasis, I think the first album, which is a way more um, kind of straight up death metal. It's kind of mm. just brutal death metal, very kind of simplistic structures. It's actually really disappointing because the demos almost got a better tone to it. I don't know if they improved, I don't know if they remixed the demo though for the version I've got. So that album's kind of like um, slightly disappointing. Then their second album, The White Crematorium, they make this huge leap and start including all these other weird elements of songs get longer and and eventually leads to the sound we get it on uh, 2008's Triumvirate, which is just like death metal, but with something weird thrown into every yeah. song. And it's like something different on every track. <laughs> it's death metal, but bigger and more intense than you have ever heard it. And it, that's emphasised even more in things like the vocals. These are some of the deepest death growls I've ever heard. They're simply phenomenal. It's just death metal, but more in every way you can imagine. So, so <laughs> the lineup as introduced on the album is um, Sejord Visht, um, Battery, Pile Drivers, and Preternatural Serenity. Uh, Michael Decker, Guitars, Untuned and Retuned. Carla <laughs> Misuse, Vox and Supreme Inanity. <laughs> Robin Cock, Fretted, <laughs> Fake Fan and Fretless Bass, Vox and Howling Insanity, Mar uh, Martin Mose, uh, Guitars, Tuned and Detuned, Carla Abuse and <laughs> Unallied Sublemnity, Carsten <laughs> <laughs> Aletten, Stan and Organ, Mammoth Orchestral Stabs and Fiddling Vanity. <laughs> so they're a band that like to have fun with a lot of this <laughs> stuff, which is great to see. Yeah, so... Um, the lineup is actually those four. Uh, the first four I mentioned are pretty much constant since the Monolith days. Carsten joined Summer in the meantime, and so Robin Cott, the bass player, is the one responsible for the supremely low mm. vocals. Then Michael Decker, the kind of vocal duties are equally split between the two of them, does like quite low vocals and then some quite high ones. Yeah, yeah. It's often very hard to tell who's doing what on this album. Mm. Actually, really true of the guitars and bass and that. It's almost a very weird thing of being quite a clean, well-mixed production. But you can never really tell exactly what's going on the guitars and bass form this like really solid mass of a riff. And yeah, this this impenetrable block which then adds to all the industrial things that are going on. And it's Again, as as I said, like just every time you hear one of these songs, you'll be able to pick out something slightly different that's happening in it because there's just so much going on in each of these songs. Um, yeah, so probably be interesting because there's a lot to be said about most of this album. We're just going to go for it like track by track. So the album opens uh, with 
one of my favourite death metal songs, mm. uh, Deus Ex Machina, which is a nine-minute epic, which has sort of intros with a kind of like electronic beat, mm. and then these mm. choral vocals coming over the top, and then Robin screams, and it descends yeah, into it like in this pounding death metal. <laughs> It's, it's about it's a nine minute long song as well. It's a really long epic song, and it is an incredible introduction to this album because it's so fast and so aggressive and so heavy, and yet still manages to throw like slight curveballs into it as well. Yeah, there's some really odd changes of pace in it. So many riffs, and mm. you, you see the start of the other kind of monolith Deathfield staple of much like Vader actually, whammy bar induced yeah. insanity <laughs> on the solos. All the solos are just like crazed noise, like. Mm. <laughs> Which they seem to be able to reproduce live, so I have no idea how you remember how you did any of that <laughs> yeah, yeah. when recording. That moves into the second track, Wrath of the Bath. Uh, the Bath being a reference to Saddam Hussein's political party. Which, the, uh, during the, uh, not the chorus of the song, but during part of this song, they actually have the war chant of Saddam Hussein's political party during it. Yeah, it's the, <laughs> the song intros with, I think, like most of the band chanting Saddam Hussein's political chant, which is, yeah. is certainly... Yeah, and they manage to, and they pull that into the song itself, and it's a bit of a theme. You have other sort of bits of weird history on this album, the more, yeah, more sort of dictators, horrible political situations and genocide mm. and stuff like that, that the more of Death got explore with their own weird take on death metal, which works really well for them, actually. Yeah, so I'd describe, like, essentially what the Mon of Death Cult do with their lyrical themes, although they may describe it differently, seems to be... Death metal's always, a, a, like, horrific lyrics. and meant to be scary mm. lyrics. Talk about, like, Thulean demons or like, the Cannibal Corpse-style mutilation. Just generally scary stuff. Mon of Death Cult go for a very real-world fear with most of theirs, yeah, of yeah. describing absolutely horrific moments often in quite recent history. So, yeah, Wrath of the Bath, mainly referencing, you know, Saddam Hussein was kind of awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, then we go into the next track, which is probably the most bizarre song on the album. Yeah, oh, it's, it's got a similar sort of, I can't pronounce its name. Uh, Kindertoschenschleid. That's right. Um, but it, it's got a sort of similar theme of looking at history, and a, it's about characters within... Um, some form of book or something like that, which takes place in. Oh no no is no it... no! It's 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 not this. This song is introed by a clip from the movie Downfall. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 This, this is probably the most hideous topic of the album. It's about. It's a song sung in German mostly from the f- point of view of like a twelve-year-old in the Hitler Youth. Yeah, who's being brainwashed by Hitler and the Nazi yeah. regime. And it's about like the the very end of like the fall of the Third Reich as the Russians are coming into the city. How. Um, a lot of the Hitler youth were rounded up and used as a kind of, like, last wave of defence. So you had all these Mm. 12-year-olds thinking they were defending the cause, charging out to fight the Russians. And this, yeah, so it's got all these, like, very Nazi, um, like, chants and stuff Mm. from from the movie Downfall. I don't think you can ever be confused with genuinely supporting far-right ideals. When you look at the lyrical content. No, no. I mean, if you, you, know, you look through the comments on YouTube, you'll find that a lot of people are convinced this is a sort of, you know, neo-Nazi type thing. But, <laughs> like, the more you learn about the model of Death Cult, it's like, no, this, it's definitely not. But it, it is that sort of theme of exploring the most difficult and the most vile things about humanity. But in this case, it's not looking at just the idea of torture or mutilation. It's looking at recent history. And, you know... Sort of, yeah, that's exactly what a lot of death metal should be doing because that's some of the most horrible themes, and death metal's evolved on that sort of level. 
Yeah, and this song is particularly interesting because it, it, it's like the intro is is almost like it's funny when you first hear it because mm. it starts with a small child like shouting something in German and then then this techno beat coming in underneath <laughs> yeah. and eventually just descends into like some like death chuggy death metal it's, riffing. It's got some great riffs in this song as well, and like all the vocals are in German, which gives like the lyrical like sorry the vocal delivery a really different theme. Like, yeah, feel. yeah. I mean, let's get into the song release of the video track of the album. But actually, I think one of the more disappointing songs on there is uh, Master of the Brazank Forests. Not sure if that's how... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But this this one's about um, like some horrendous German legion that I think even the Nazis ended up hating in the uh, Second World War. More kind of... Yeah, more war-themed. Like, when we say recent history, this album in particular really has a lot of references to the Second World War and that period of time. This sounds this song's a bit more plodding and has more of the like uh Deus Machina elements of more kind of like orchestral sounds provided by Carsten um over the top of it. Um it, it works pretty well. Like um this is I think this album is really laying the template. I'm not sure when Communion came out, but laying the template for bands like Septic Flesh and Flesh Called Apocalypse will be doing of combining kind of orchestral ideas over really intense brutal death metal yeah yeah was, and the more difficult they do that from sort of point one on this album but they do it in sort of almost different ways each time sometimes as we say it's this industrial feel to it and sometimes it's this well stalin organ as it's described and things like that sometimes it's this more orchestral theme to it which will then be taken up by other bands but it, it's really interesting just the variety on a single album because a lot of bands have added this in you have bands like Flesh God Apocalypse or Septic Flesh which add all of this stuff in but Modern of Difficult have done it in so many different ways all in the same you know hour long piece of music yeah uh, which leads us nicely into the next track MMMDF which is um, I think no MMDF sorry yeah which is like kind of a just like very atmospheric instrumental piece it's a mm. three minute instrumental um, which has like these these like kind of soaring female vocals over the top a uh, few more vocals on this album provided on by um, an Indian hone. I completely pronounced that wrong. Sorry, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So there's like other weird little influences on there, and this one has a very like it kind of almost sounds like Arabic folk influence over mm, a kind mm. of sort of slow but heavy riff. It's a very cinematic song. Mm. I think the title briefly translates to "Miles and Miles of Fucking Desert." <laughs> Uh, well, translates like stands for. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Then we get like another one of the really longer moments on the album, which is "I spew the out my mouth," which is like a mainly Michael Decker led um, piece vocally, and is another just really hefty death metal song that has these huge breakdown sections where the mm. band like everything will come to a halt, and you'll just get like a, a piece of weird chanted vocals or something yeah yeah it's one of these monstrous epics sort of like as we begin with deus ex machina which the model of death cult have got so good at doing just managing to make death metal interesting enough with enough turns and changes and changes of pace and new vocal sort of segments introduced that you can keep it going for like nine minutes in the case of deus ex machina and not far off that i believe in this track yeah i think i think this one's about eight minutes mm. uh then we get the song that like strikes me as probably the the obvious kind of like memorable single type song from the album mm. of Demigod. This song is <laughs> uh, based on 
I'm pretty sure based on the movie 300. Yeah, I've, I've come to the same conclusion, actually. <laughs> Which they, they kind of uh, lampshade hilariously in the lyric book with the lyrical explanation. They've put lyrical explanations under all their song titles. In that one, they just put a load of reviews from Iranian magazines <laughs> yeah. about how the 300 is an awful <laughs> film and really offensive. <laughs> 300 is the United States' attempt to humiliate Iran in order to compensate for its war doings in order to provoke American soldiers and warmongers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, this this track, really catchy, really groove-laden. Like, the interesting extra element they add on this is there's, like, secondary percussion over the top of it, so you've got the drummer doing a beat, then this weird kind of, like... Um, like books kind of sounds like a floor tom fill mm, that kind mm. of goes around. It's got this real kind of like marching type beat to it. Yeah, I guess this real sort of like war like theme going on, which they have on a few of the other songs as well. But here it's sort of right at the fore with this extra percussion, which is just another extra element they're adding on top, which really helps the atmosphere of the song. Here again, going for a more archaic war, like much further back in history than some of the other stuff they've been covering. And much like uh, Wrath of the Bath, like there's some really cool chanted vocals, like mm-hmm. where with multiple vocalists coming in. Like it's another staple of they make chaotic death metal songs quite memorable by having yeah, these. Yeah. So yeah, they have just this chant of the chorus of "We blaspheme" and like chanted over and over again. Then Michael does this ludicrously high high scream that seems to go on forever over yeah, the end of yeah. it. And and another great breakdown in the middle of you get this kind of. Both guitars and the bass come in in this harmonised kind of, again, like an eastern-sounding scale solo in the middle. Like the the one kind of maybe melodic solo. I guess it's not really a solo, it's more of a riff on this. Yeah, yeah. But it, again, it fits the theme quite well. It has a different feel, which feels like sort of maybe areas of Greece or something, which just, uh, with, as the song is talking about, which just puts you in the mindset that they're going for. So they're really good at tailoring it to the subject matter that they're covering. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like... Again, over the top, there's like there's very subtle keyboard work throughout this album. Carson does a really good job of adding exactly what's needed on each song. Like, Wrath of the Bath, whenever it stops and there's a breakdown, he has this pedal that must drive Soundman insane <laughs> that just makes this huge, like, kind of electronic explosion yeah. noise. And I yeah. think uh, probably yeah. peaks a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of soundboards. But yeah, like, dropping things like that into these songs just adds something to keep them a bit more memorable with... Um, with Demigod, there's just kind of quite subtle keyboard melodies over mm-hmm. the top of this. Mm-hmm. Then the album where, the, sorry, the the song in this album that was closer and really <laughs> brings in all these weird elements. Um, we got a 14 minute, I think, Des and Norden's Dronin. Which is Lines on the Loss of the Curse. Yeah, so the song is a combination of the, the naval hymn over a death, like, blended into a death metal song about the sinking of the Russian submarine, the Kursk. Yeah. Which is an incredibly cool a, idea. Yeah, it's such an amazing idea. <laughs> yeah. So it has it starts with like a minute long intro of like this this classical hymn, like uh, I'm not sure where they've sampled the rendition of that from. And then just Robin comes in with the longest, lowest growl, like <laughs> just an incredible thing, and just slow kind of pummeling death metal mm. that eventually builds up into a soaring chorus where you have clean vocals, um, two two clean vocalists come in to to add to this. The guy who does the clean vocals on it, I think, helped in the composition of this song. Mm. In the lyric book, they reference him by like some website you can find him on. <laughs> the link's dead. I can't. I, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I couldn't find anything about the guy's name either. So 
yeah, just completely unable to find any information about this. But yeah, so it builds up in these great clean choruses and then like slow death metal in between. And then has this massive middle section where it gets really fast. You get all the dive bomb leads come mm-hmm. back in, like like multiple vocalists, like just like really awesome screaming where it like will switch between speakers, like pan left to right, and you get these like nice call and response vocal lines. But it's it's a great use of the thing, which you know a lot of death metal sometimes suffers from, where you have a death metal vocalist who can make a certain noise. And I always feel sometimes you need a little bit more variation. And Monolith Defcop do that fantastically because they have multiple vocalists who can do different noises and some great different noises which accentuate different bits. And it just makes listening to it an incredibly interesting experience as well as like incredibly like, brutal and aggressive and fast. Yeah, and, and then the, the album closes out really nicely by when it comes back to the final clean chorus. Um, it then goes into this really melodic, mainly keyboard-driven passage where the clean vocals just go off and kind of mm. end the song. And it just, like takes about two minutes and just fades out. And it's just such a perfect closer to such a weird, epic album. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really sort of nice counterpoint to the Vader album in a way because this is the opposite of that from the perspective of death metal. This is your long, complex, involved, loads of elements like all working together to this long, sort of complex masterpiece really in the same way that vader's short sharp and really aggressive album is a masterpiece this is the same thing and really sort of looks at the diversity of death metal you bring carcass in celtic frost as well this enormous diversity in what you can do with what is a you know called a single genre where you have all these different elements which is just fantastic yeah and as rob was saying earlier like on repeat listens there's loads of great things to find in this like really like some of these just really silly bits like in that final track if you listen very carefully the whole way through the song there's this like sonar bleep it yeah, kind of sounds yeah. like a metronome throughout the song <laughs> but it just really fits in nicely with the the kind of um, the story about the curse. Yeah, but, and, and at the same time fits into like industrial elements that they've put into a lot of the songs anyway. So it, fe- it doesn't feel out of place. It feels like part of the monolith death cult. Yeah, because we're, we're massively focusing on like the lyrical themes and the vocals here. But I think it is just because the vocals are so well delivered. They're quite clear. You can normally hear what's being talked about. Mm. And the lyrics are just really memorable, yeah. interesting yeah. stuff you will get the chants from these albums stuck in your head. like <laughs> Even if it is the chant of Shadow Hussein's War Party. Yeah, it's, well, you know. Could be worse. On the, the follow-up album, they have oh, the chant... The Call to Prayer. Well, no, that, that's... They, I think the Call to Prayer might reference it. No, I was thinking of Drugs, Fugs and Machetes, oh, which yeah. has the <laughs> has the chant of um, the Hutu tribe when <laughs> before massacring the Tutsis. Which oh. is continuing their kind of coverage of... Some pretty terrifying themes. Yeah, as you know, that's exactly what death metal should be doing. So outside of this, um, Carson more recently has formed the black metal band Remember You'll Die. (laughs) Which is in line with their sense of humour. Yeah, yeah. Um, The other guitarist, uh, Margin, quits shortly after this album to join Prostitute Disfigurement. I'm not sure if he's still in that band at the Mm. moment. Um... And then we like the the follow up album again, much like this, really worth a listen. Um, Tetragrammaton, yeah. yeah, with taking the kind of ridiculous extra elements to the next level by getting the guy who voiced Optimus Prime yes, to come in to, to do, do the introduction, word yeah, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, a, including a <laughs> a redoing of a William Blake poem where they've changed the lyrics to be about the monolith death cult <laughs> which I think I referenced earlier <laughs> the, um, the, this album actually was produced pretty in house by um, Michael Decker and Pascal 
uh, Altena, uh, Carsten's twin brother, who I spent half an hour trying to work out whether he's real or not, because <laughs> I can never tell what the fuck's going on with these guys. Pretty sure he is real, but yeah. we... <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing production job to get all of these elements to sit nicely, and they do form this block, but if you really pay attention, you can work out what each element is doing, and you can hear something different. Yeah, there, there is there is a huge amount to be found. This is about 16 minutes long, and it's so worth a listen the whole way through to say the follow-up's really interesting. And actually, yeah. I think very soon this year, we're going to have their fifth album coming out, yeah. which is, I can't quite work out, it's either called Versus V or Five, mm. something like that. Mm. But They've also got um, Blood Cults, which is a recording of some of the earlier material they've done, which is much more traditional death metal. But he's, like, I picked it up recently, actually. It's really worth checking out because it just has their, like, the level of production you can expect from like this album and Tetragrammaton, but with this more brutal death metal aspect, which is really cool and definitely th- worth listening to. I think it's like six reimaginings of mm. the, the songs from the first album, which is a really interesting thing to do with an album that I am not sure the band's feelings on it, but I always felt mm. it was a slightly disappointing one. Um also, it has a acoustic version of the final song from this album oh, yeah, on it, yeah. which has to be heard to be believed. <laughs> Genuinely works quite well, but yeah. uh, when I first heard that as an idea, I was like, like <laughs> how? A 40 minute death metal epic into an acoustic song, yeah. But yeah, this band really worth um, following on like social media sites and that, because their, oh, their press releases team. are incredible. And, um, and as Phil said, it is impossible to tell whether they mean what they say, or whether it's a joke, or whether it's ironic, or... Yeah, or, like, or, when... Uh, <laughs> When their guitarists quit the band, they they just did. They've done one. They did one statement about it where they claimed uh, he was now missing after his uh, helicopter was shot down <laughs> trying to transport the only oh, copy yeah. of Trumbera <laughs> to Libya at the time <laughs> before the whole revolution in Libya <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> So, you know, maybe he was like <laughs> this is what started Who the whole. Tell, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so. Um, from this album, we're going to play the the first track, Dares S. Machina. This is just such a brutal death metal song. It just it has to be heard to be believed what they did with this. Yeah. 